There's a story of this couple that had been married for well over 50 years, and they had had all sorts of highs and lows, and the husband had a pretty severe stroke and was unconscious for several days, and when he came to, the first face he saw was his, his loving wife. He said to her, oh, there you are again. I, I don't know why it's taking me so long to have this revelation, but I've realized something that I've missed for over 50 years. And you remember back when we were young married and I had that stupid car accident and I was unconscious for a day or two and I woke up in the hospital and you know who was there? You were. And do you remember a couple decades ago that heart attack I had? I opened my eyes, first person I saw was you. And now here this time again, there you are. And I realized something. And he, he took his wife's hands and, and held her and he said, honey, your bad luck. <laughs> Sometimes you can look at all the data and come up with the completely wrong conclusion. And in fact, we do that every day of our lives. We have ways of thinking that block our ability to even see reality, let alone embrace the full measure of what God wants to do in us. And we're going to continue looking at that in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. So I encourage you to turn there with me. Last week, we spent most of our time in verses 1 through 17. Today, we're going to complete the chapter. By way of review, let's look at what we learned last week. Paul begins his letters so often with doctrine and with worship and with encouragement, but then at some point in the letter, he takes all of that and says, so what? How should this change our life? And this is the turning point, verse 1 of chapter 4. I urge you that you live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Since we're looking at this, pastors, through the lens of transformation, it answers the question, why bother? Why change? Well, because God has saved us and redeemed us and called us and sanctified us, and he has prepared us by grace for works that he prepared beforehand that we should do all these things in the opening parts of Ephesians. He did that so that we might live a life worthy of the calling, and now he's going to look at what that looks like and the change that has to happen in our life. If we have radical unity in the church, if we have the presence of God who is above all and through all and in all, if we are functioning as God has gifted us and enabled us to minister to one another, and if we are speaking truth, if we have this authenticity, if we're doing all that, this ought to be the product, mature people, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a high standard. Remember how complete that is. Christ is the standard, and Paul says our target ought to be every piece of Christ in our life, the full measure. And of course, if we're those kind of people, you'll have mature churches. In every respect, we become the mature body of Christ. And we know, we, we faced that truth last week, that Christians aren't, by and large, showing that sense of completeness, and therefore churches are full with anything but harmony and honesty and truth-speaking and maturity. And it's because the way we've spiritually discipled has ignored the critical area of the emotion. We have people who profess to be spiritually mature, but they're emotionally immature, and they're running churches. So churches have anything but unity. 
We're far from this picture, right? What's the problem? Well, Paul goes immediately on and says there's a barrier to change that you have to deal with. You must no longer live as the people of the world do in the futility of their thinking. That's what we're going to explore today. What Paul means by the futility of thinking that we're stuck with from our previous life, all of us when we come into Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin, but we still bring with us our capacity for sin, our corruptibility. God wants to work in us to bring about sanctification. We bring a certain ignorance about the things of God, and part of the spiritual journey, of course, is to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but there's a piece that we're missing because what we also bring in are patterns, ways of thought. Every experience you've ever had, every person you've ever met, every decision you've ever made, the success of it, the failure of it, the pleasure, the disappointment, the hurt, all that has contributed to a story you tell yourself about life, about the world, about other people, but especially about yourself. And that story is far from reality. And it's that kind of thinking that we have to look at so that we move beyond the the broken pattern of responding and reasoning that is keeping us stuck and keeping us from becoming mature to the full measure of Jesus Christ. And so that's the solution in verse 23, be made new in the attitude of your mind. The word be made new is the word renew. If the translations in the Greek lexicon were in today's culture, we might call it reprogramming. The big idea is this, let's say it. To live a whole new way of life, we need a whole new way of thinking. And we're gonna now read on, continuing again at verse 17 till the end of the chapter. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the love of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building the others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This chapter could be written right now in the American culture. That's how relevant this passage is. In fact, we could say it just like this. Why don't you say it with me? You must no longer live as Americans do in the futility of their thinking. In the passage, he says you must no longer live like the Gentiles do. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus who are Gentiles. And he's saying to them, stop thinking like Gentiles do. In one sense, the people he's writing to are Gentiles, but in another sense, they're not. That's the distinction Paul is trying to make here. In 1 Corinthians, he makes these distinctions, the Jews, the Greeks, and then he says, or the church of God. No matter what country you live in, no matter what your nationality or ethnicity, If you are a Christian, you are part of a whole different race, a whole different ethnicity called the people of God. And so in the same way, the people that Paul was writing to were Gentiles, but yet they weren't. That's true of you and me. In one sense, we're Americans. Of course we are. But in another sense, we're not. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're part of the children of God. We're part of the church. I think the church over the last several decades has made a huge mistake of co-mingling being patriotic with being Christian. I'm patriotic, but we have co-mingled being American as being Christian. And then we brought the whole idea of the pursuit of the American dream, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and we, we confuse that as what the Christian life is about. That's not what the Christian life is about. That's what the life of the Greeks is about. That's what the life of those who are outside of Christ is about. I gotta tell you, you have the right to pursue anything you want, but you know what you were created to pursue? God. And life, liberty, and happiness will not ever fulfill you. Only God completes and fills us. We are Americans just like they were Gentiles, but yet we're not. We can't think, we can't plan, we can't go about pursuing our lives in the same way our culture does around us. Two key words. The first word is futility. The way culture around us thinks is futile. And the word there means emptiness or ineffectiveness or unstable or purposeless. The word thinking there is the exact same word for the mind. What it means is our intellect, our reflective thought. He's talking about the way you process, the way your brain works. And he says, we bring with us into this life in Christ a broken way of thinking. And to this church in Ephesus, he says, you've got to kick that because it's keeping you from becoming fully formed followers of Jesus Christ. You with me? All right. What I want to do right now is take verse 19 and show you that what Paul's doing here is describing that futile way of thinking. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. 
The first word I want you to think about in this downward spiral of futile thinking is the word numbness. You see, when you're apart from God, when you're apart from the life of God, when you're darkened in your understanding, we're looking for satisfaction, we're looking for pleasure, we're looking for fulfillment, but it always seems out of reach. Something feels like it's missing. Paul describes that as loss of sensitivity, numbness. Have you ever experienced that? Life's out there, but I feel like I'm, I'm missing some of it. Why do you think uh, people start cutting, for instance? Think about that. I want to feel something, some experience to show us that we're still alive. You know, one of the interesting things for me, turning 60, is that <laughs> your knees get numb, your ankles get numb, your brain gets numb. And you can understand why people have midlife crises, because they got to go prove that they're still young. They have to prove that there's still life going on. That's why a lot of middle-aged men have affairs, right? So what that produces is fixation. Paul says, as a result of that, they give themselves over to things. They find a hobby. They find something that becomes the equivalent to religion for them. That fixation might be a job. It might be sports. It might be online gaming. It might be pornography. It might be a person that you make the center of your life. We become fixated, and the next word is indulgence, that whole idea of sensuality. We tend to equate it with sexuality, but the scriptural idea of sensuality is things that come to me through my senses. What Paul is saying here is that we give ourselves completely over to experience, thinking that the external experience will make us feel alive, will make us feel like we have purpose, like life is worth living. The problem is none of that fills the deep need that's inside of us. So the result is dissatisfaction. Paul says they are full of greed. One of the definitions for that is that they are constantly thirsting for more. If I'm not getting what I need, I'll just try more. I'll try harder. And it's why every passion, every addiction that isn't God always requires more of you. What turned you on when you were looking at the computer screen last week won't turn you on a month from now. The drugs won't keep you as high. The people that you're looking to fill the hole in your soul will disappoint you and fall short. So you'll run and try to find it in someone else. Always hungering for more, which closes the cycle because all we get is more numbness. You see, it's a closed loop of thinking that's a downward spiral towards emptiness. And that's why Paul says you have to break free from this cycle of thinking that is keeping you from being fully formed in every area into Christ. Paul goes on and says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, 
the way we typically approach these two verses is to focus on putting on and putting off. But actually, there are three infinitive statements that are complementary. They are all in what we referred to last week as the middle voice. We participate in what's happening. Three statements here that Paul is saying that we are to participate in cooperation with God and the Holy Spirit that will enable us to embrace this new life. The middle one is one that we overlook, but it's the one that glues the whole passage together. If our problem is this futile way of thinking, then the way we're able to put off the old self and then to the new self is to be made new in the attitude of your mind. What Paul is pleading for is sanctified reasoning. And it's the same thing he's pleading for in Romans 12 too. Let's say this verse together. Do not live by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He's talking about the way we go about pursuing our goals, the way we go about processing and deciding, and the only way that's gonna change is if God changes how we reason and how we think. He goes on now. We read it earlier, and if we were just to start a study right at verse 25, you might mistakenly see this just as a list of don'ts and do's. Don't steal, but work for a living. Don't be angry, but be forgiving. But Paul is describing what the transformed person will look like as we put the old life away and put the new life on. The first thing we see is a change in character. It's a change from counterfeit to authentic. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We are all members of one body. The more you are transformed from the inside out, the more real you become. You stop pretending. You stop faking. You show up. You're present in your marriage. You're present for your kids. You're present in people's lives. They see the real you. The second change is in attitude. We go from anger to peacemaker. Verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And then, of course, if we went on to the end of the chapter, we see this whole idea of forgiving and putting aside our anger with one another. So we go from being angry people to peacemakers. Let's go back to that fixation on things that people try to, try to find fulfillment. Let's talk sports. Have you ever noticed that the biggest sports fans are some of the angriest people? <laughs> Have you experienced that? Our family got a chance to go up to a Patriots game in November. We were way up in the nosebleed section. It was cold that night. The people around us were all season ticket holders. What an angry bunch of people. <laughs> because that fixation will never bring you happiness. If God's really transforming my life, that will be put aside and I'll be a peacemaker. The third thing he talks about is a change in our vocation. This is in that verse where he says, those of you who are stealing should stop stealing. Find something to do so that you might contribute. Now, the old self, the old way of thinking is a very self-centered person. Either we live a life in which we're stealing 
Lord, we live a life where we are generous people, so we move from being selfish to generous as God changes us and transforms us. Fourth area, in our conversation, we move from harmful to helpful. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let's talk about the kinds of conversations that go on in churches the way good people find themselves on opposite sides of issues, damaging each other with their words and with their accusations. Let's talk about how we are so quick to fill in the lines with our own narrative when somebody says something or does something that we rush to being hurt or rush to judge and condemn, that we amplify and create mountainous issues and we open our mouths and we harm people and we harm the cause of Christ. If real transformation is happening, that is a thing of the past. We open our mouths carefully And we open our mouths to bless, not to criticize, not to damage, not to vent. All of that is part of the old life. Finally, there's a transformation in our relationships. We move from discord to harmony. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I mean, just look at that. Look at those five transitions. Look at the shortcomings you're aware of in your life that are represented on the left side of those comparisons. And just imagine if you could be the person that's on the right side. Wouldn't that be awesome? Paul says that's exactly who God intends for you to become. You know that phrase about the things that we know? There's what I know I don't know, and I can do something about that. There's what I know I know, but then there's what I don't know that I don't know. And that's the area that's blocking most of us from that person. All of us have those dark spots, but God's Word talks about how to bring light to those dark places. Starting next week, we're gonna talk about flicking the switch. But when I was dealing with this, and I was in this passage myself about 16 years ago, I came with four things that I knew had to be changes of perspective as I begin this new area of God transforming my life, and I want to share them with you now. First steps to renovation. The first, I have to be deliberate. You have to stop being passive about what God wants to do in your own life. You're not going to fix your life by fixing everybody around you. You need to be serious about the work God's going to do in your life. You need to recognize this stuff you don't even know that you don't know that God needs to get at, and we are to participate with the Holy Spirit as he works in our life. God's going to empower our obedience, and he's going to help bring about change as a result. You need to get serious and deliberate about this kind of change. Second, I must aim higher. 
Remember in this passage the picture of what maturity is that Paul doesn't hold up as some pie in the sky, but he says that's what we're gonna look like if we are the real body of Christ and if God is really transforming us. Let's aim for that. We've accepted a level of incompleteness as the norm and we bless it in each other's life in the name of grace. And God wants to do so much more. We need to aim higher. Third, we need to look deeper. There's only so much that you're consciously aware of that's going on in your heart. We need to look deeper. We need to become students of our own brokenness in order that God can heal it. And then finally, I can't do this alone. We need each other. We need to be truth speakers into each other's lives. You know that whole thing about you not knowing what you don't know? Here's the thing, everybody else does. (laughs) Now the problem is they're seeing it through their own screwed up way of thinking, and that's another problem we'll deal with. It almost feels hopeless. How do we speak truth in love? How do we even land on it? That's part of what we're gonna be dealing with over these next weeks. But let's start with these changes in our thinking, and let's join God and invite God into this process of transformation, all right? Can you do that much? And then we'll come back next week and we'll bring some light into the darkness. Let's pray. Father, I wanna start by thanking you for grace. There's nothing that we are or will ever be that we've done or will ever do that makes you love us less or more, but you've put us in this atmosphere of grace that you might do a deep, loving work in us. Forgive us, Father, for in some sense making a mockery of grace by settling for who we are when you are committed to finishing the work that you started. And so, Father, we say to you, finish that work. We open our hearts to you, and we ask you to do a deep level of transformation. All God's people said,